In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Fulton County's district attorney is not playing games. Lady Justice is actually blind. This is the reality. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the podcast we want you to depend on for the most on-the-ground coverage of the 2022 election. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the AJC. If you're listening to us for the first time, welcome. We drop episodes every Wednesday, Friday, and really whenever news breaks. So please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss a thing. Patricia, I know it's been a vacation week for a lot of our listeners, the people on the road, including us right now. You're in the car. I'm in a hotel in Charleston, but it has been no shortage of huge news on the campaign trail. Greg, when you say that we have a podcast whenever news breaks, that means we would have a podcast 10 times a day in Georgia. Today alone has been a doozy, and we'll see what tomorrow brings. Yeah, we'll talk all about that. Uh, coming up, we'll talk about how a new fundraising vehicle is changing the race for governor. and other top races, it sounds nerdy, but it is really important. <laughs> but first, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is leaving the door open to the possibility that she will subpoena former President Donald Trump. Here's what the DA told our friends over at NBC. If you are a member of a gang and you're committing a crime in my community, I am going to make sure that you are held responsible to the full extent of the law. That has brought ire. People are angry about that. And as a result, there have been threats. It's just part of the job. Um, People also seem to think that in society that there are certain people that are immune from prosecution. If you are a celebrity, if you are a high ranking public official, I guess that there is something strange with me. Lady Justice is actually blind. Um, This is the reality. Well, Patricia, she has summoned Brad Raffensperger to testify. Governor Brian Kemp will testify later this month. And just this week, she subpoenaed a number of members of Trump's innermost circle, including Rudy Giuliani, including John Eastman, including some other campaign aides and attorneys, and including Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, which was maybe one of the biggest names. You know, this might all lead to Donald Trump, as many prosecutors say, that building a case is like kind of building a foundation. She's gotten a lot of lower level operatives talking. Now she's gotten some of the state officials that are maybe easier gets. It seems like pretty soon she'll have Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan and some other state lawmakers testify, but her sights might end up with the former president <laughs> being subpoenaed. Well, obviously this is an investigation into Donald Trump because the event that 
launched this entire grand jury probe was that call between Donald Trump and Brad Raffensperger. So obviously, Trump is the subject and the target of this investigation. And I think of it, you know, either like a a ladder, I think of it as like concentric circles. And with every round of subpoenas, the circles have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. And then right in the bullseye, is Donald Trump. You see that these are people, the closer you get in the subpoenas, the closer they are to their own direct knowledge of Donald Trump, their direct conversations with Donald Trump, and their own knowledge of exactly what his motivations might have been, and exactly what he might have done, and who else was directly involved in that. And again, this is an investigation. This is not a trial. So this is all about getting information from these witnesses. Um, Many have some rather have tried not to answer those subpoenas and we're seeing that this judge is not entertaining that either. Some of these uh, witnesses are going to have to come in even if they don't want to. Um, There may be parameters, but the judge I think is also serious about this as is Bonnie Willis, that this is a, a very serious situation. You and I get asked all the time, by people from outside of Georgia. You know, is this serious? Should we take this seriously? The answer is yes. They're taking it seriously and we're taking it seriously. The judge, I've known Judge McBurney for years, Robert McBurney. He used to be a, a top federal prosecutor. I used to cover him when I, in my old job when I covered legal affairs. He, um, I was in the courtroom quite a lot with him down in the Russell building. He was appointed to the Fulton County judgeship by, um, by then-Governor Nathan Deal, and he's very well-respected and also very serious about this. Look, Fonnie Willis will listen to a part of the interview with NBC. She said she is by no means is this some sort of show for her. I think that people thought that we came into this as some kind of game. Um, This is not a game at all. What I am doing is very serious. It's very important work. And we're going to do our due diligence in making sure that we look at all aspects of the case. And so all you see is a prosecutor doing their due diligence. Patricia. You know, Republicans, Trump, Trump's allies write this off as a witch hunt, as as some sort of like political gimmick for Fonnie Willis, who just got at the job last year. It's not like she's been in this as Fulton DA for decades like her predecessor was, Paul Howard. She's new at the job. You know, we don't know what her political aspirations are, but we know she has a very long track record of prosecuting successful cases in Fulton County. And given the evidence that we've already reported, that we've heard with our own ears, you know, that will be at the center of this case and the new testimony coming out, there's going to be a lot for that special grand jury to look over. And and remember, of course, you know, but our listeners, just a reminder, this special grand jury will not, you know, make the call on whether to indict any of these figures involved. They will instead recommend whether Fonnie Willis should move forward with a criminal case. And who knows what they'll decide, but they could go either way. And I think it's important for people who haven't watched Fannie Willis a lot. She's very meticulous. I think she also is very aware of the risks that this poses to her reputation. There are some criticisms that this is not a good use of DA resources in a county that has multiple, many people in jail without trial yet, people who, cases that are uncharged. So I don't think she would be doing this if she didn't believe that it was absolutely necessary and could lead somewhere. And then in terms of uh, people saying, would she be worried about bringing an indictment against Donald Trump? Fonnie Willis has charged and convicted murderers, rapists, 
child traffickers, gang members, uh, very high-profile members of the rap community, the music community here in Atlanta. That wasn't popular. Public school teachers, that wasn't popular at the time, but she did it anyway. So I really don't think anything is off the table here. But again, because she's very meticulous, I think that's why this is going very slowly very deliberately. We're not getting a lot of leaks out of there. All the information that we're getting really is out of these public subpoenas. And um, it's a pretty locked up process. And it's not like a zoo. You don't see people on the courthouse steps giving press conferences. You know, this is a very locked up, tidy, meticulous process. And we'll see where it goes. We don't know. But these are two serious people in the courtroom. And that's not their first radio. Yeah, and a reminder to our listeners to also check out our friends at the nationally renowned Breakdown Podcast because they are literally creating new episodes as we speak about the latest in what could be, uh, and we don't say this lightly, what could be the trial of the century if it doesn't move forward involving the former president. So check out Tamar Hallerman, who has been covering every twist and turn of this process. So, I mean, she's, she's getting national acclaim for her coverage. And of course, Bill Rankin, who is our veteran legal affairs reporter over at Breakdown. I'm going to switch subjects now to talk about another, another race that never seems to uh, have any shortage of news. And that's the Senate race between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. Look, I mean, Patricia, we're going to have weekly, even daily revelations about Herschel Walker that are pretty significant. We at the AJC have reported on so many of them. And our friends at the Daily Beast have broken several stories about Herschel Walker's unacknowledged children. Now comes a story from the Daily Beast that his campaign staff was misled about the fact that he had some several additional children that he hadn't previously disclosed. And that, to me, the biggest part of the story was that members of his own staff don't even trust him. And, and this story um, referred to uh, texts and emails that were going between staffers who said that, you know, who worried that he was a, a liar, that, that they couldn't trust the candidate they're working for. And, and this is just one of a string of stories that we've covered, that other outlets have covered, that really directly question his credibility as a candidate. I have not seen a story like this. I, I actually don't remember seeing any kind of campaign story like this where you and the way we're getting this information, it is a leak from a staffer on the Herschel Walker campaign, according to the Daily Beast. And the Daily Beast says they were comfortable reporting this because of all those internal text messages and emails that they read. And not only does it paint this portrait of a campaign staff in chaos and campaign staffers to whom he lied about the children. Uh, they went to him and said, we've got this press report. Do you have any other kids? And in uh, the Daily Beast's telling, he says, nope, nope, that's it. You know, Nope, that's it. And they said, okay, well, the report comes out, that's not accurate. There's another child. Are there any more we should know about? And in the Daily Beast story, it says, mm, no, that's it. That That's all. Well, there were two more. There's just a very bizarre dynamic uh, being painted between the campaign and the candidate for people outside of that campaign ever. Um, I think uh, if I were a Republican senator, for example, it is describing a situation where the Walker campaign staff is not leveling with the people outside of the campaign, not telling people in Washington, donors, not letting them know exactly what's going on inside either. And so it is a an incredibly unflattering portrait. Will this move the needle with voters? That's always the question. You know, I don't think that anybody who's a diehard Herschel Walker fan is going to read the Daily Beast, frankly, <laughs> at all. And if they hear about this, 
this, they'll probably write it off as gossip. And, uh, you know, if somebody has something to say, they should name themselves. It's an anonymous source. And that's a problem. It's almost not fair to the campaign that it is an anonymous source because they can't say, you know, it's very hard to refute that if they don't know where it's coming from. But on the other hand, a lot of this does line up with a pattern of Herschel Walker externally also not being honest. So it's a, it is not a great day for the Walker campaign. And we can say that because we have been absolutely bombarded with texts from other Republicans around the state saying like, what is going on? What is happening? And and use the word gossip. That's exactly the phrase that Scott Paradise, the uh, the campaign manager for Herschel Walker, used to describe the story. He said the staff is 100% committed to Herschel Walker's victory in November. But still, that being said, this is a nightmare for him. This is a nightmare for his staff right now. It's going to be a rough few days. And you know, this is by no means the end of the stories. I mean, how many stories have we at the AJC written alone? about Herschel Walker, lying about his business record, lying about his academic experience, campaign blunders, misstatements, exaggerations, issues about his past stances on everything from immigration to the theory of evolution. I mean, all sorts of issues that we've covered, that other outlets have covered, lying about you know being in law enforcement. There's all sorts of issues that, as the Daily Beast reported, um, several of his staffers told them that they see him as a pathological liar. Now, you ask the question, does this matter? And we at the, we at the AJC, we have a story up online and in print uh, in today's paper that will explore that a little deeper because every time one of these things happen, in another campaign, it could be a deal breaker, right? I mean, unacknowledged children. Look, even saying lying that you graduated from UGA would have been a campaign ender not so long ago to other candidates. And uh, with Herschel Walker, he's proven to be this sort of Teflon candidate. It didn't, you know, hinder him at all in the GOP primary. He won with seventy percent of the vote or so, even to the point where his the runner-up Gary Black, the agriculture commissioner, said he wouldn't even vote for Herschel Walker in the general election because he feels like his past is disqualifying. Well, enough Republicans didn't feel that way, and we're still hearing the same from a lot of activists, a lot of voters, who say, "Look, even if they believe that Herschel Walker." has made all these misstatements, mistruths, lies. They're saying, look, I'm not voting for the candidate themselves. I'm voting for a Republican Senate. I've heard that over and over and over again, that this is more than about someone's personal character. This is about Joe Biden's record. There's nothing more that Republicans want to do to focus this race on Biden and the economy and gas prices and all the like, and not on Herschel Walker's personal issues. And even Herschel Walker himself, Patricia, he said, look, if this campaign is about the issues, we win. If it's not, then it's a whole different ballgame. Well, and I think the generic ballot poll absolutely bears that out. And the generic ballot poll that's asking any voter, would you rather have a Democrat or Republican in Congress? And Republicans are far outpacing Democrats because Joe Biden's approval rating is way down in the 30s. And it's like he can't do anything right these days. It's just hard to watch Joe Biden right now. It's hard to watch his staff around him. Uh, They're also leaking about Joe Biden that they don't trust their own candidate either. So uh, Biden is a huge drag on these candidates. But if it's not about the issues, if it's about character and competence and fitness and honesty, that's a problem. It's not a 100% problem for Herschel Walker, but is it a 0.5% problem if he's locked in a a neck and neck race with Raphael Warnock 
I think it's on the margins that this could just eat away at his support among, you know, independents, somebody who is a kind of a moderate Republican, moderate Democrat, not in love with Joe Biden right now. I feel like that's where it just sort of, it's just another rock on the pile for Herschel Walker. I think also what I'm hearing is that for donors to this campaign, they're getting exhausted. They've got a million other places to put their money. They can invest in state Senate seats, state house races. They can go over to Arizona and pump money into that U.S. Senate race. There are so many competitive races on the map right now that if the Herschel Walker campaign doesn't write this ship, they're going to have big problems. The way to write this ship, I really do think, is for Herschel Walker to get out there more, to dispel this notion that they're hiding something. Agree to those debates. Sit down with the AJC. He's never yes. done a sit-down interview with us, despite multiple requests. That is highly unusual. We really don't run into that <laughs> with statewide no, candidates. No, we don't. Um, and it's not good. And I've told his campaign before, you know, until we hear from Herschel Walker, his point of view will not be reflected in our stories. That's just the reality. Um, so I think they possess the solution to this problem if they're willing to deploy it. And we'll see. You know, the, the, that article gets to the heart of it. They don't trust him, according to that article. We'll see. You know, there's four and months left. That. That's an eternity. But yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen that from a strategy. They're keeping him, you know, if not, I mean, it's certainly the beginning of the campaign. They were keeping him under wraps. Very few like, public appearances, yes, like very controlled environments. Yeah, uh, the private events, all sorts of private speeches, that kind of thing. Patricia, you mentioned two things that we're going to get to later on. What first is rocks? Well, we have a lot more to say about rocks. <laughs> and secondly, you talked about Joe Biden's staff, and that reminded me, Kate Benningfield. The Atlanta native, the proud graduate of Sandy Springs Middle School and uh, Riverwood High School and a certain AJC reporter's date to the ninth grade homecoming <laughs> dance at North Springs High School. Hi, Kate. I still have those and pictures. it wasn't me. Uh, it was not, yeah, it was not Patricia. Um, is leaving uh, after three years of being one of Joe Biden's top communications officials. So I have no idea what Kate's plan is next, but, uh, but that news just emerged. And again, we have a lot more to talk about the Senate race and all sorts of other races to come, but we're going to take a quick break and get back to the news of the week. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy. And we are two of the three authors, along with Tia Mitchell of The Morning Jolt, which is a newsletter we spend a lot of time on every night and every morning. Patricia, you're in the morning. I'm more at night. 
And we believe the morning jolt sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And we also like to break a lot of news and do a lot of analysis. You can get the morning jolt in your inbox every morning. If you're a subscriber to the AJC, join our community right now, this instant, by simply going to subscribe that AJC.com slash podcasts in your first month of a limited digital access, just 99 cents. That subscribe that AJC.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. And Patricia, one of the things we're seeing that's really reshaping the landscape, and again, this sounds super wonky, but it's very important, is that Republican lawmakers passed something called leadership committees a few months ago. Governor Kemp signed it into law. Uh, it was meant to give Kemp a, a, a sizable, a hefty financial advantage, but it essentially allows state candidates, uh, certain state candidates, to raise unlimited money and coordinate directly with the campaigns. They're called leadership committees. And I've taken, when I'm, we're seeing fundraising numbers this week, and I've taken to just lumping those into the overall money. So when we say Brian Kemp raised nearly $7 million in the last two months, 3.8 was from his traditional campaign, and about 3 million was from these leadership committee uh, funds. And I lumped them together because there's really little to distinguish one from the other because they're all lumping it. They're helping to finance ads and pay for staff and, and all this. And unlike your traditional super PACs and PACs, they can directly communicate with each other. So the Kemp campaign is actively coordinating with the leadership committee. And Patricia Stacey Abrams has the same benefit now. So she is raising, we're not sure the total picture, it's just coming into clearer focus, but she's also raising uh, millions of dollars and including from big donors like George Soros through these leadership packs. And Republicans are the ones in the legislature who created these leadership packs, and they did that knowing that Governor Kemp was likely to face Stacey Abrams, who is an unbelievably powerful fundraiser, and they wanted to give themselves just some more firepower. And so it creates this really unusual and new and I think really important dynamic that it's unlimited funds that can come into these into these packs or these leadership committees, rather. And so that also uh, kind of doubles the influence that people can have with these candidates because the candidates know who's giving the money. It's not kind of a shielded super PAC that people don't know about. It is uh, kind of very clear to them and to everyone who's giving this money. Um, George Soros, we know, is currently the largest donor in Georgia. He's given Stacey Abrams two and a half million dollars, which is just a gargantuan sum at this point in the campaign. I think that's amazing. But the irony of the Republicans creating these leadership committees mm -hmm. is that they've sort of gone to Stacey Abrams' greatest strength and like supersized it. So they seem to have inadvertently said, okay, what is Superwoman's superpower? It's fundraising. We're going to just give her uh, some sort of way to double or triple or quadruple her superpower. And so they, they are sort of, uh, they're going to, for as much as they're able to raise, now Stacey Abrams is going to be able to do that much and more. And it looks like she is on track to do that. She is. And Democrats in general are going to have a hefty fundraising advantage. I have very little doubt that Raphael Warnock will vastly outraise Herschel Walker. I have very little doubt. We'll probably have the numbers by the time you guys hear this, but I have very little doubt that Stacey Abrams will blow, uh, will, will vastly outraise um, Brian Kemp, maybe even blow him out of the water. We'll see. And look, Republicans uh, make no bones about it either. They, they think they'll get outraised too, which is a turning of the tables, especially for an incumbent governor. But at the same time, the $7 million is not an eye-popping number anymore. <laughs> That's how vastly things have changed. I mean, you know, a couple of cycles ago, $7 million would have been staggering, but now it's 
in Kemp world that he hopes that just helps him keep pace. But you're right. Stacey Abrams has become the, uh, an elite fundraiser, as has Raphael Warnock. And for Abrams, being able to tap unlimited sources of money from these big donors, it will tremendously help her campaign, as it will Brian Kemp's. And gone are the days when Republicans can just paint Democrats as these like out of state. They'll still try, right? Oh, you're getting all your money from out of state. And they might still get more of their money from out of state. But Republicans have nationalized these races too. Brian Kemp was in California recently for a fundraiser. He's been in Texas with the former president, George W. Bush, for fundraisers. He's been all over the country as well. Because look, there's a reflection that Georgia is the premier national battleground state and that both, <laughs> both parties have to raise big bucks from outside Georgia's borders to stay competitive. Yeah. You know, at a certain point, there will just be so much money in these races. As long as you have what you need, there there becomes sort of diminishing returns, especially on TV ad spending. But being able to do it in unlimited sums also gives these candidates a little bit of wiggle room in terms of they you don't have to work so hard for individual donations that can really make a big difference to your campaign. So um, California is probably exactly where they're going to find donors like that. We know that Stacey Abrams has some big donors out in California as well. But I don't think if you asked any voter on the street, do you think that unlimited spending is healthy for a democracy? I think they probably say no. Yeah, they they might say exactly that. Well, one more topic before we get to the mailbag is Jesus, guns, babies, and rocks. We're talking about someone who we really didn't talk about throughout the entire campaign, which was Candace Taylor. She's a far-right Republican candidate for governor who got destroyed, and she got 3% of the vote or 4% of the vote. I moderated a debate at Atlanta Press Club through GPB, where she made all sorts of inane misstatements and lies about President Biden and, and others. And, you know, we got, got some pushback. Hey, why don't you step in and correct her? And I said, look, you know, we're, we, I was asking her about education policy and, you know, the issues of the day. And if she wants to use her time to spout falsehoods, then me trying to correct her in the middle of them will only bring more attention to those falsehoods. I don't know if that's the right strategy, but that was my strategy. But anyway, one of the falsehoods, one of the lies that was probably, you know, front and center of her campaign as much as abortion and guns and, and religion was destroying something called the Georgia Guidestones, which is this collection of granite rocks, basically a monument that was mysteriously put there by uh, private investors, private individuals near Elberton back in 1980. So this has been around for 42 years. I can say I've never visited them. <laughs> um, but I've definitely read about them that. and heard about them. <laughs> but they're basically a series of kind of lessons to live by written in multiple languages. And for the most part, they were non-controversial, live with respect others, live harmoniously, that kind of thing. But there was a few that were bizarre. One talking about the need for a world court, another talking about a need to cap the world population at 500 million. And um, so they've gotten some pushback from folks over that, but it's also taken root among the QAnon conspiracy crowd as at the center of some sort of plot. And among Candace Taylor's set of supporters, she promoted the idea that these were satanic and anti-religion and uh, made it one of her calling cards to uh, to take them down. We tweet a lot about them. 
you know, I resisted the urge to give that attention <laughs> and so did other reporters. Uh, she even tweeted about it shortly before the debate I just mentioned about in probably in hopes of having us ask her about it. But it turns out that either we don't know what happened exactly that's still under investigation, but it lo- appears an explosion was set off a few days ago at the site of this monument. And uh, it damaged one of the, uh, the rocks so badly that authorities took the entire monument down out of safety precautions. And Patricia, it shows you just how uh, even fringe characters, even conspiracy theories from fringe characters can just take root. And in the minds of uh, minds of at least some folks, this was an evil installation. We don't know what the motives were behind whoever destroyed it were, but it shows you how how far these conspiracy theories can go. Yeah. And, you know, the scale of these was enormous. I mean, they uh, they were kind of called a Southern Stonehenge. I mean, they were probably mm-hmm. 20 to 30 feet tall, massive, massive. And Candace Taylor, among her campaign promises, one of them was to destroy the Georgia Guidestones, which always sounded really bizarre and crazy. But to your point, and the reason this matters, and the reason that we're talking about it on Politically Georgia, is because um, since it was a part of her campaign, and it, it, but it has taken root on the far right, and it was something that had gathered the attention of QAnon posters. And it's in this sort of, all of this kind of bubble and swirl of very bizarre conspiracies that are bizarre, but then they also have real world consequences. And so along with a uh, statewide uh, Republican candidate talking about this and discussing it on a debate stage, there has been this detonation, uh, which means that there is somebody in Georgia who had the ability and the motivation to destroy these things, believed it enough to go in and take them down, if that's what happened. And um, to see the video, the GBI has posted the video of yeah. uh, the explosion, and it is massive, it's just huge. And you can't tell if something is shooting at it, or if it if, if there's like TNT at the base, it's very hard to tell. But then the comments below the GBI video are of people saying, where's the rest of the video? Why aren't you showing the video? And sort of like more conspiracies on top of it. And it is this uh, entire sidebar world that is getting more and more mainstream. It is getting more and more a part of mainstream conversation, statewide candidates, and people taking action. And, you know, that is the same trajectory of a lot of the plots that led to January 6th. It's a lot of the plots that have led to a lot of very, very dangerous outcomes. And so it's the type of thing that really gets authorities' attention and concern. Um, The person who covered this for us was our extremism reporter. We actually have an entire beat at the AJC about extremism because that is where this is coming from. Um, That's where the interest is. That's where the attention has been. And it's more than likely the source of, uh, of this explosion. And that's Chris Joyner, our reporter, who's been covering extremist issues. And me and him were slacking. We were sending messages back and forth. And I was nudging him. I said, look, you know, a breaking news reporter could cover this, but <laughs> this goes beyond your typical <laughs> goes way breaking beyond. news. Although it did well, break Well, and uh, the mayor of Elberton was like, this is crazy. You know, I mean, he's yeah. up from up there in North Georgia. He said this this was a monument to Elberton, which, was, which is the granite capital of the world. Two-thirds of the monuments and markers all around the country are all from Elberton. And they were very proud of those tablets. And so it's not something that the locals there 
sort of like privately shunned and all thought was nutty, although some of the parts of it seemed a little nutty um, and the secrecy around it was very unusual. However, this was not something that was an eyesore among people who live up there. The mayor is was very distraught that this has happened and said that a lot of work had gone into that and it really spoke to the worksmanship and craftsmanship and something that couldn't happen anywhere besides Elberton. But this very bizarre conspiracy has brought it down in a way that's very violent and potentially criminal. It was a matter of pride to the community and the DA has said he will throw the book at whoever is found culpable and they already have, investigators already have a number of leads. Look, people have sent me <laughs> different leads uh, about this case. Um, so we'll, we will uh, keep watching that one. Patricia, it's time for our, our one of our favorite segments, the listener mailbag. And you have this week's question. Oh, I sure do, Greg Bluestein. Okay. Do you remember Mr. Briggs, my Sunday school teacher? <laughs> oh, of course. Yes. Yeah, so Mr. Briggs uh, wrote in once and had a great question, and he's written a follow-up question. And Greg, it's about you. <laughs> okay. Are oh, you God. ready? Oh, Lord. Okay. Yes. Um, oh, gosh. No, he's so nice. He just wants to know. Um, P.S. When Greg says false lies about Trump, Aren't all lies false by definition? <laughs> this is more about your syntax, Greg. <laughs> also, yeah, if a lie a is one. false, doesn't that make it the truth? <laughs> He's right. He says, <laughs> it's a double he says, negative, I guess. Kidding. Just kidding. Uh, and Mr. Briggs also wanted to know, um, we had mentioned on this podcast about Jen Jordan saying that she has no intention of defending the six-week abortion ban if it's uh, if she is elected Georgia Attorney General and that law goes into effect right now. It's held up in courts. And I've had a number of reader questions come in about Jen Jordan's stance, about the seven local DAs around Georgia who have said they are not going to prioritize enforcing this bill. And then there are even some state governments, um, City of Atlanta and also Athens and the City of South Fulton are all considering resolutions to also instruct their Mm -hmm. own staff to deprioritize this and that they won't include funding in it in their own budgets to enforce this. And so the general question from readers that I'm getting is, is that legal? Like, is that okay? I've spoken with a number of constitutional scholars about this because I had the same question, although we've seen things like um, sanctuary cities before. There are cases where laws are not enforced locally. And legal scholars I've spoken to have said that, yes, this is legal, that there's wide discretion granted to DAs, discretion granted to cities. I mean, cities can decide on their own. There are a million things to do. What 10 things are you going to spend money on? And then for an attorney general in this state, the attorney general doesn't have the ability to say that this law is not enforceable or that this law is not legal, but they do have the ability to take themselves out of defending it in court. And in that case, if the governor is supportive of it, he can uh, get outside counsel to do that for him. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting because we wrote a big story about how the next battle over abortion is going to shift to local officials or state officials. It's going to shift to the Georgia Supreme Court. We expect the federal ruling in the next few days, weeks, that gives the go-ahead to allow the Georgia's anti-abortion law to take effect. Um, you know, we could be surprised, but a lot of legal scholars tell us expect that law to go to be allowed to go forward by the federal court, um, which has allowed uh, you know some time for counter arguments and arguments. 
But Patricia, as you mentioned, there's a number of local prosecutors who are saying, nope, we're not going to force it. We have prosecutors all the time that decide maybe not so loudly, right? But there's lots of laws on the books in Georgia that aren't being enforced right now. And I, I'll give one, one example, in a way, is a big provision in SB202, the election law, where it bans outside groups from giving water and food to people while they're waiting in line. We've heard from a number of people who have gone and given water and food oh, uh, to yes, people waiting right. in lines, and it's not being enforced, right? There are people basically pining to get arrested to challenge this law in court. And so far, um, we haven't heard of any high-profile cases where that's happening. So all the time we have, you know, we've had local prosecutors who say they're not going to prosecute minor drug tri- crimes and, and others who take the opposite attack. Uh, we've updated the story to note that a prosecutor in North Georgia said they will absolutely prosecute to the fullest extent of the law any violations of Georgia's anti-abortion law once it hits the books. So the other big facet to the story is that without abortion clinics, if abortion clinics shut down, if doctors are unwilling to provide abortion services, then even if a prosecutor is not going to enforce the law and not going to um, you know, press charges, there's no case in, underlying case to uh, to deal with because there's not going to be any abortions in those jurisdictions. So we're not sure how that will play out. But Jen Jordan's stance is interesting because we have seen the state, uh, you know, uh, you know, not appeal criminal cases and, and things like that, that lead to exonerations, you know, that lead to criminal trials being suspended and things like that. So she could certainly take that stance and it would be a big blow. Um, to, to any case. Um, and I'm not sure how that would proceed, but we'd have to talk to some legal experts, but that's a big stance for her. And, and frankly, she's also said that I think there's a 1908 Supreme Court law involving privacy is going to be yes. a game changer in her view mm-hmm. involving this. And you've written about that, Patricia, our colleague Shannon McCaffrey's written about that. So there's a lot of different moving parts to go on with this. I know. And we're, you know, in Georgia, we're looking at a situation where for the first time in a very long time, we could have statewide officials with very different opinions on very serious issues. So we could have a governor of one party, lieutenant governor of another party, uh, attorney general, secretary of state. It could be a real mixed bag. And so um, it would be fascinating to see what happens if we have a governor with one set of opinions and attorney general with a completely different set of opinions, and they've both been elected because of those opinions. Something we haven't seen in, I guess, more than a decade in Georgia, or about a decade. Yeah. Now it's time for our who's up, who's down segment. Patricia, well, you can go first. Who, who's up in your book? Thanks, Greg. You know what? I'm going to give my who's up to Governor Brian Kemp because he is just sitting back and watching the show for once. He just—he is not in some big, heated, horrible primary. He doesn't have to deal with uh, stories coming out about him. He, he and his campaign are able to sit back, raise money, focus on November, keep it tight. Um, they are definitely in a position where they are very grateful to have gotten to. And so I'm going to say this is just, you know, this um, he's in a wonderful plateau for himself right now. And I think so as a result, and it's a high plateau for now. So for me, he's my who's up. Yeah. And uh, despite what the Q poll is, I'm going to call it Q poll because several of our readers pointed out how I mangled the name of uh, of the university, which I will not <laughs> say. readers are giving you a hard it. time, Greg. I don't think I they know, should. I know, man. I'm having it. <laughs> our I'm listeners, it. I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but anyway, there you know. Despite what that poll said, that he he's he's you know single digits in front in all the internal polls and most of the public polls we've seen. And as we've noted multiple times, 
so comfortably ahead that he has not issued any sort of pronouncements about what he would do in a second term. He's left that to Stacey Abrams and he will, you know, this fall he'll, he'll outline things. I'm guessing a tax refund or, you know, more tax cuts, that that kind of thing. But so far we're not hearing that from him. My who's up though is going to go a different route. I'm going to say former president Jimmy Carter and his beloved wife, Rosalind. Yes. Yes. It is their 76th anniversary this week. They've got a love story that's really unmatched. I've had the chance to see it firsthand. Back in 2009, I went to Haiti and Dominican Republic with them for you know some for a series of stories, but one of them was about their relationship. And I, I got the chance to see them. I remember it was I was sitting outside a Dominican hovel <laughs> like near the border with Haiti, I think it was, and in the middle of nowhere. And um, they were there to fight, a, you know, to help fight a really horrible disease called schistosomiasis. And, uh, you know, I, I pulled them aside and said, hey, can we talk about you two for a little bit? And we did. And, you know, I just kind of let them banter. And they just went back and forth. I wish I still had the oh, audio. But they went I back and forth it. about their love affair and about, you know, their relationship that stretched back. At that point, you know, 50, 60 years, uh, now it's 76, but in all their adventures. And, you know, back then he was out in public still a lot more than he is right now. And I remember he'd interrupt press conferences and just say, my beautiful wife, who's been with me every side, she's also, you know, front and center in this effort to fight guinea worm or schistosomiasis, whatever the, you know, whatever the, 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 the scourge that he was talking about or the, the initiative he was promoting, he'd always bring her front and center. And, and uh, they both got weepy when I did that interview. I still remember that. And I'm getting a little verklempt now too. Oh uh, Patricia, who's, I know, I can't, I'm such a softie. Uh, who's your, who's down? <laughs> my who's down. down. Okay, we're going to drop the hammer. Um, my who's down is Senator Lindsey Graham. He is fighting his subpoena uh-huh. to come here to testify in Fulton County Superior Court based on his role as the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And I think there is a deep irony of somebody whose entire job it is, is to oversee the Justice Department and the judicial system using that position in a way to obfuscate or not have to come in and testify about something. You know, to me, the central question, he's saying, hey, I'm uh, his staffer, rather, is saying, hey, he's the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And his role, it is he has more than enough freedom to just ask questions about elections. And that is true. But the question is, would Lindsey Graham still have made this call several calls to Brad Raffensperger to ask him about all of these ballots after Donald Trump lost. Would he have asked them about that if he was the Senate of the Health and Education Committee? Would it matter Would it matter if he was the chairman of the, you know, of his hometown humane society? I don't think it really, I don't think it was a, a part of that capacity. It sure didn't seem like it. He never mentioned his concern, his overall concern about systemic election issues before Donald Trump started saying that he actually won the election when he lost it. So I'm going to put him at my who's down specifically because of that Judiciary Committee position that he is pointing to as his reason he shouldn't have to participate in the judicial process. Yeah, I remember after the AJC and other outlets reported that he had uh, he had reached out to Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, way back in, I think it was January of 2021, he was asked about it in the halls of the Senate. And he said, why wouldn't I reach out to Rod Raffensperger? The fate of America is on the line. So that was his that was his public comments about it way back when. And now he is, he is trying to avoid uh, testifying in private before a special grand jury that's being convened 
about this issue in, it's in particular. It's one of the first interviews he has ever not wanted to give. I find I know, it strange. For a guy who, who is no stranger <laughs> to cameras, has never found a camera he doesn't like, has suddenly found a, 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 no, a microphone. No microphone is to. a stranger to him. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm going to go the easy route for who's down this week. I'll say Herschel, Herschel Walker, yeah. just because when you have your own staffers, I know it's the simple way out for me, but when you have your own staffers, apparently, according to this Daily Beast report, you know, saying that you're a pathological liar, saying that you don't trust the own candidate you're fighting for, it's a morale issue. And again, it might not change any votes. It might not, you know, but it could affect donors, but really it affects the staff morale. And Scott Paradise, yep. the campaign manager, Mallory Blount, the, um, is it Blount or Blunt? You know, I've never, I've never pronounced her last name, but I think it's Blount. But Mallory, who I've only called Mallory all these years, the deputy campaign manager, they've got their work cut out ahead of them because they've got to um, stabilize a ship that hasn't really, you know, in the primary, they were never really tested. We wrote about that um, in, in the latest story. They they never confronted a real test because they were so comfortably ahead in the polls. They didn't do debates. They didn't do a lot of traditional campaign uh, you know, uh, programs and initiatives and weren't out there really at town halls and other things that were, that were widely available to the public. Um, it started to change the tune near the end of the primary, but still, and right now we're not seeing much of Herschel Walker either in public venues. And uh, now they've got, they've got their work cut out for them. You, our listeners, also have your work cut out for you. How's that for a segue? Uh, to, to keep up with everything in Georgia politics, and you can count on new episodes of this podcast to come out every Wednesday and every Friday, or really whenever big news breaks. That's what we should say. So it's not whenever news breaks because we'd be we'd be on in your ears all the time, but whenever big news breaks, and we will see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.